The biggest challenge really is that most people have a lack of understanding of foods and what's in the food and how different it is from one uh, box of cereal to another, from one meal to another. The varieties of food crops that we grow are really highly diverse, and they have to be. To help produce food effectively in a wide range of environments, farmers have relied on biotechnology to help plants resist diseases, respond better to environmental stresses, and produce higher yields. This has been done for thousands of years using crossbreeding. Beginning in the 1990s, plant breeders were able to make very specific genetic changes through biotechnology to access a broader range of traits to solve complex agricultural problems. Because all living organisms use DNA to determine traits, it is possible to take a gene from one organism and move it to another in order to obtain that trait. This process is what we call genetic engineering, or genetic modification, known as GM. Since genetic engineering allows us to take genes from anywhere, it allows for more solutions to problems than with crossbreeding. As people have considered this technology, they have raised a variety of concerns. There is confusion about what the real risks are and which ones are simply sensational media. Let's clear the air. The risks of eating a genetically modified food are essentially the same as eating any food. You have to think about could it cause a toxic reaction or could it cause an allergic reaction? We understand the mechanisms of those things and regulators of genetically engineered or genetically modified foods have developed guidelines that help lead the developers and the scientists through an evaluation to reduce the risk of toxicity and of allergenicity from any food before it goes onto the market. Toxins will affect essentially everybody, and it's not always immediate. Quite often they're immediate reactions, and sometimes they're very long reactions, but it affects essentially everybody. And so if you have 100 people, 99% of them will react, or 100% of them will react the same way. If you have an allergen, it's very individualized in terms of the reaction. It's an immune reaction. You have to be exposed to that food source before, and your body makes antibodies against it, and about 1% is the highest of any of the known allergens. 1% of people might have a reaction, and they have to avoid that food. Everybody else can eat the food without any adverse effect. I think that most consumers have begun to listen to people who say there's no safety testing that uh, is done on a genetically modified crop, whether it's corn or soybean, or on a genetically modified salmon. The truth is that the food crops that we're eating have been tested for thousands of years by people eating them by experience. And, you know, a lot of what we know about safety is very well established. And again, people don't know that because they haven't been exposed to that in terms of what's really done with food. When you develop a new GM food, whether it's a soybean or a corn or a peanut or a GM salmon, you have to go through the same kinds of tests for all of those uh, individual genetically engineered events. The primary concern is, is the gene producing a protein that's an allergen? 
So how do you evaluate that? The real issue is, are you transferring a protein from one source to another source that's already an allergen? To determine if your transgene source will introduce an allergen or toxin, scientists use a series of four main tests, which include source history, sequence comparison, serum testing, and pepsin digestion. When a scientist is considering which potential genes they could use to solve a problem, the first thing they consider is the history of the source. What does that mean? Well, let's imagine that we want to make soybeans resistant to a disease. A good resistance gene is found in peanuts, spinach, and panther mushrooms. The gene from each source would do the job, but some of them would not be considered. Let's think like the scientists to find out why. The peanut has been eaten for thousands of years, but it is also known to be the most common allergen, with 1% of people reacting. This protein will have to go through further testing to see if it is involved in giving an allergic response. The panther mushroom is known to be poisonous. Even if the gene that we transfer does not make the toxic protein, we don't consider this option without specific additional tests. People have eaten spinach for thousands of years with no known reactions. We even feed it to babies. Spinach, the source of the gene, has the best history and will pass step one. For the new GM protein, what we do is consider the sequence of the protein, compare it to known allergens, because if you are allergic to peanut, you're allergic to certain proteins. If we take proteins that are similar to a peanut allergen, to one of the proteins that cause allergy, if we transfer a similar protein into a new food like rice, then you could have the same kind of reaction that you had if you actually ate the peanut. And so we look at the sequence of the protein and we have a database here at the University of Nebraska, an allergen database of essentially all the proteins that are known to cause allergy. So the new protein sequences compared to the database Every protein has a unique sequence, and this sequence determines all its properties, such as how it does its job or how our body recognizes it. Similar sequences give similar properties. This means that scientists can use the information contained in a protein sequence to detect risk before they ever move a gene anywhere. This is done by comparing the sequence of the transgenic protein to a database of all known allergens and toxins. If the transgene source has a history of allergenicity, like peanut, or if the protein sequence is similar to a known allergen, we can use blood from people who are allergic to detect whether the protein we want to transfer will cause allergic reactions. This is done through tests called IgE antibody binding assays. In these tests, blood is drawn from a patient who is allergic to the known allergen. The serum from the blood contains antibodies and is applied to the samples of transgenic protein. The scientist then determines whether the protein reacts with the antibodies in the blood sample. If so, the protein is likely to be an allergen and the project is scrapped. If not, these people will be safe when they consume products with this protein. Allergenic proteins typically take longer to digest in the stomach. This property allows us to test the protein we want to transfer to see if it could be a potential new allergen. If the protein takes too long to digest, it raises suspicion as to whether the protein could become an allergen. If it breaks down quickly, we've accumulated one more piece of evidence that this protein will be safe.
So now that we have looked at all the steps, let's take a look at how they would play out with a few examples. We want to use a gene from peanut. We know that this source has a history of allergenicity, so we will certainly need to do serum testing, but we won't skip the sequence comparison. If the protein doesn't pass the serum test, the project will be scrapped because it poses a risk to people with peanut allergies. However, if it does pass, we'll also do the pepsin test. We want to use a gene from onion. Onions do not have a history of toxicity and rarely cause allergies. Let's say that when we compare the protein with the database of known allergens, we find it is very similar to a milk allergen. We would then need to do serum testing with the blood of people with milk allergies to see if they react. As before, if there is clear evidence of antibody binding, the project stops. If not, we move on to the final step of pepsin digestion. We want to use a gene from spinach. There is no known history of toxicity or allergenicity in this source. When we ran it through the database, it wasn't similar to any known allergens. Since this protein isn't associated with any known sensitive population, like the peanut or onion examples, it doesn't make sense to do serum testing. We then finish testing with the pepsin digestion. These four steps of safety testing come from international guidelines implemented by the United Nations. Although we've shown these steps in a very linear process, the tests can be performed in a different order. And since each country is responsible for the food safety of their citizens, some tests are performed multiple times. In addition to these food safety tests, government agencies are responsible for ensuring safety for the environment. People make a lot of claims, and most of the consumers have little understanding of food, and they just listen to that. And then how do you as a scientist communicate to people that we can evaluate the potential risky properties of food, and we can make sure that we're not putting in something that would increase celiac disease, that we're not putting in something that would represent a major source of allergy or toxicity. But communication then is the real key to things, because that's a difficult thing for me to do. And for most scientists to be able to talk to the public and help alleviate their fears.